welcome to Creative Innovators with Gigi Johnson. Our guest today, I met at SIGGRAPH, and she transfixed the audience with a wonderful discussion about her incredibly varied life. Saraswati Vani Balgam started out in India and ended up helping Rhythm and Hughes build their operations in India and throughout quite a few countries in Southeast Asia. She then moved to DreamWorks, where she was working with them with their Chinese operations, and then now has created Dancing Adams, her own venture that helps bring stories of Southeast Asia to the global community. She's become a leader in entrepreneurial organizations of bringing out new creators from women all over the world with various partnerships. And now she is working on several shows, but you'll hear her journey of how she has really found that trust is her real bellwether to the creative industries and has given her tremendous opportunities of building with intriguing partners. Please enjoy Vani's story. I am just a total fan. A quick note on this story. We have some technical issues that we was a new mic set up for for us that we ended up having a little bit of wobbling going on. And then on Vani's side, we had some echo, which we got rid of some of it, but it, it will not be the most glamorous audio setup. Please be patient. It's a great conversation and enjoy this conversation with Vani. Bonnie, I you so inspired me at SIGGRAPH that um, you had a room transfixed with your life experience, with great graphics for it, but also such imaginative risk-taking to build new things from scratch around the world. It was totally fascinating. So I'm extremely excited about having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gigi. This is, this is all my pleasure. Excellent. So... Can you start us off and explain what you're doing now? And it's it is it all in Dancing Adams? Is it beyond Dancing Adams now? What are your adventures right now? So I am running a boutique studio in Los Angeles, uh, and I'm focusing on telling stories, of course, um, mostly from India and Southeast Asia to bring them to the rest of the world. So that's really my focus is how do I transcend people? How do I transcend experiences that I've had or I know people have had in these parts of the world and bring uh, animation content, preschool shows, feature films, games, but with a very strong voice, which is mine from India. And so you are living a multinational life. So even though you have your studios here in LA, we're catching you right now in India. Right. Where else is the footprint of your life right now? Oh my God. I would say Los Angeles and India are the two big footprints right now. But if I could put another one, that would be up in the Himalayas. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, can you start us backwards? Let's trek backwards in life. And can you tell us about Vani when she was about 16? Was she a creator? Was she a, a filmmaker? Was she a storyteller? Was she patient? Was she adventurous? What was Vani at 16? I think she was fearless. <laughs> 
I think she was untamed and fearless. I I look back and say, oh my god, like I was so gutsy. Like I had no concept of fear. Like I was not scared of anything. Um, and I did exactly what I wanted to do. And I had, I didn't think too much um, about the consequences of right and wrong, whether it's the right decision or the wrong decision. But I think I was also at the same time very spiritually grounded. Um, so I feel like it was, I felt free. I felt very free. So what did, what did the 16-year-old you think you wanted to do when you grew up? Oh, wow. I think the 16-year-old wanted to. <laughs> I, I think I just had very simple dreams, to be very, very honest. I, I just wanted to be independent. I wanted to be financially very strong. Uh, I never wanted to be, in the, you know, dependent um, financially on anybody. And I was willing to do whatever it takes. Um, and I didn't have, I didn't think a job was a good job or a bad job or a small job. I just knew that I had to do what was there to get moving. Um, and my dreams were also very simple. They weren't as big as they are today. <laughs> <laughs> they were very simple I think I wanted a very simple life I wanted to be happy I wanted to you know be with my friends um, and just be financially independent I think I would joke with my friends of you know when I grow up I want to wear shorts and I want to have my own apartment and I just want to listen to music all day long oh wow <laughs> you know being in India uh, or growing up in India, wearing shorts was like a big deal. That meant like you've, you have arrived. You know, that was, that was a massive big thing for me. Were your parents <laughs> creative? Did they live creative lives or are you oh, stepping yes. into their footsteps? Okay. My, my father, I think from the, the last memory or the first memory that I had of him, um, was that he was a man with colors. He would always have sketch pens uh, and he would just use sketch pens uh, to continue drawing very intricate little patterns that were Indian patterns and then he would create these forms um, and images around it. Um, and there was always paint in the house. There's always colors in the house and, you know, whether we were painting walls, um, just even these white walls, he would just simply continue to paint them with different colors. Um, my mother loved, um, she still does a lot of painting, like flowers and patterns and stitching. And so it was filled with arts and hobbies all the time. What did they expect you to do? I think like every other parent in India, I think they wanted it. My mother, I would say, wanted me to live a very stable life. Like she would be like, she would have very minimal expectations. Like get your education, get married. And, you know, like you can be a school teacher and teach your kids when they come back home. <laughs> so she had very, like, very, like, you know, like, okay, this is going to be a trajectory in life. And my father was the wild card. Like he dreamt 
for us about winning Oscars. He dreamt about us driving in multiple cars and he dreamt about the unachievable. And my mother was like, always like grounded. So I don't know where we ended up. <laughs> but they wanted... Cars, peace. Why are you talking cars? I don't know. I think he was just always fascinated. He had traveled around the world. And he would always be like, I can totally see you in that car and that car and that car. And I, till date, don't understand that fixation with cars because I'm not a car person. Uh, so... But for him, I think the car basically meant independence and freedom. Um, probably a little bit of luxury, but I, I, I thought it meant more freedom more than anything else. For me, it resonates because um, there's this great exercise. What would it be for you to feel wealthy and successful? And I grew up in a relatively poor family. And so the idea of having a second car was an indication of freedom and wealth. And so when I said nice. I did that exercise, <laughs> we ended up just realizing I just need a junker in the front that I don't drive to feel wealthy as I was second car. And we actually did that. Um, so ha having multiple cars, totally, I, I grok that entire sentiment, but from my point of view. So when it right. came time as you know, school teacher, Oscar, college, life, what were your first set of choices that you took to leave the household? Um, as much as my father was a big dreamer and wanted to do a lot of great big things, um, we were financially very, very strained. Um, he didn't have enough money to send me and my brother to school. Um, we couldn't afford college. So I think we came we came to understand life and at a very, very young age, probably too early, uh, maybe for our own good. But the one thing that I saw was that my parents were borrowing money, you know, to, to make things meet, to make ends meet. And that's something that I never wanted. You know, I said, this is a big no. I don't have to achieve really big things in life. I don't have to have multiple cars, multiple houses, win Oscars, but I definitely do not want to be dependent or borrowing. Um, and that was very strongly instilled by my mother um, because she came from, I think both of them came from very minimal backgrounds. Uh, so I, I felt more the desire to say, whatever I do, I want to be standing on my two feet, however small that is. So what were your first <laughs> steps out of the family home? Um, I found I got a job um, probably like at 17 or something um, to leave we were in a uh, in a city called madras which is currently called chennai and i left home i was 17 probably getting close to 18 or even less um and i moved to mumbai which is bombay um and i started working in the visual effects and animation industry as a coordinator so i was i used to go 
to the set, uh, the film set, and then pick up data for visual effects, uh, you know, for green screen or to do some effects or uh, very, very simple work. How did that walk in your door? How did, how did you step into that space? I have no idea, actually. <laughs> I think it was... It was just more that I've always wanted to be a filmmaker and I was never given the opportunity to be in the direction team because it was so, there were actually no women in that space in India at that time. Um, and it was such a scarcity that there was, they were very scared to take any female chances. Like they were, they were worried more about the risk of having a woman um, on a movie set. And so the visual effects was the closest that I could have been in touch with live action filmmaking. And so I taught myself a couple of things, thanks to my brother, who was, who was a wizard, you know, like picking up things and putting things together. And he'd be like, this is how it's done. And this is what is happening. And I'd be like, okay, great. Then I can, I can be like, um, I can be good at collecting data. I, I'm not, a strong technical person, but I'm creative, so I'm going to jump into that bandwagon. And I said, I, I will do this, this, and this. And they were like, okay, great. Nobody has said they want to do that, so come on board. So it literally happened like that. So how did the next parts of your journey go? I mean, you ended up at Rhythm and Hughes and helping them build a lot. What was the journey from that starting point to that bigger experience? I would say that, you know, all these experiences that happened um, kind of put me, it's actually, I, I really don't understand how any of this happened, uh, but I was in the studio in Mumbai, uh, Bombay, and there was an email that came from Rhythm and Hue saying that they wanted to come and visit and send some work to India. And I was like, okay, I, you know, and it was a dial-up connection I couldn't see anything back then, like all the little photographs were coming up and they were taking three hours to pop up on the computer. And finally, when they came, I didn't, it, it, I couldn't fathom that these were the studio that I had made and, you know, a, a movie called Babe, where they had won the Academy Award. And I was like, wait, what, what is all of this? And who are these people? And why do they want to come to India? And why do they want to work here with with Indians that are not trained or talented to provide those very high-end services. So I basically spoke the truth and asked them those questions. Uh, and that's basically how Rhythm and Hue started a year later, I think, when they finally came and said, well, we want you to run Rhythm and Hues. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm not the right person. And they were like, no, come on and, you know, set up, set up the company. So why did you think that you weren't the right person? And why did they think you were the right person? <laughs> that you need to ask them. But I'll tell you, I had all the reasons why I was not the right person. Um, I, hadn't, I hadn't graduated from school. I was not an MBA. I had no idea what a business is. Um, I had never run a studio in my entire life. I was always working for somebody else. Um, I never set up anything on my own before. Um, 
I don't think anybody reported to me like in that particular way that now I and I never set up an entity legally before in my life. There were so many things that I had not done before. Um So I don't know. <laughs> I think I think it just happened where they said they basically John Hughes um and Richard Castaldo from Rhythm and Hughes back then um they had an interview with me and asked me a bunch of questions and they were like what would you do how would you do this how would you run a company and i was so cocky <laughs> i would say i was so full of myself i'd run it from my apartment and they'd be like are you sure you'll run it from your apartment and why would you do that and i'm like i want to save the costs and like really like did i really think these things through before answering those questions i have no idea but the very young person in me was had seen a lot that my father had done and i think all the education of the choices that i made i think were subconsciously coming because of what my parents had gone through or what my father had gone through in setting up businesses in india So this was about 2000 2001 right <laughs> so that yes. was an era that was just after napster that there was disruption happening in various industries right. but still the early stages and then you spent more than a decade then with rhythm and hughes what did what did you bring to that adventure how much did it change you and what was the whole I mean that that in itself could be a hour long conversation but what was <laughs> what's kind of the nexus of that experience for you i think um on the on the human front i think i understood what trust is um and what trust can do so when john kind of hired me over a phone call and i had never been to the us before and here was an academy award winning studio and he said you're going to legally set up a rhythm in hughes in india i didn't understand that but when i understood it i think it absolutely changed me because trusting somebody that you don't know trusting somebody that you've never met trusting somebody is no joke um and then believing that they will deliver is another i mean like how how do you how do you do all of these things um in a world where it tells you not to trust where it tells you not to believe um and culturally we were so different you know i i i grew up my entire life in india i never traveled outside of india um and john never came to india so he never met never? in india okay he never came to india before that and and so i think 
the the biggest takeaway was how do you how do you reciprocate to someone who trusts you and then how do you expand that trust to everything else that you build you know so when the uh, how do i put it like when the seed um when the foundation is trust then everything has to start with that and end with that you know every day had to start with that and end with that so every person that i recruited after that um every person that we welcomed into the studio every transaction that we made was purely coming from that that i trust you that you will do this and so that was the biggest um Yeah, I think that was the biggest takeaway and continues to be the biggest takeaway in my transactions as I move forward is I have to trust you to do what I need to do in my life. And that's the best that I can do is trust you. And and that's the beauty of it. Like the magic that happened after that was unbelievable because we started trusting our next set of people and then the next set of people and then everybody started trusting each other and the energy that we shared at with Min Hughes India was just brilliant was just so beautiful that there was never any kind of politics there was never any kind of backstabbing there was no room for that um so we just loved doing our work and we continue to do the best quality of work and we we partnered with our studios in in the US um we worked so hard and we ended up winning a couple of oscars again <laughs> so for people so, who don't know animation or why in the world animation would be working in india can you talk about sort of the the relationship and work patterns that that were of that era i think visual effects was a very nascent or it was very upcoming in india back then like we're talking you know 2000 something very early 2000 um there was a lot of passion there was a lot of art there was understanding but there was no technology and then if the technology was there the technical expertise wasn't there because we hadn't delivered that many films so to start something from scratch and and to build everything from scratch was was very 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 hard um to educate people to appreciate people to value people those were the things that did not exist back then you know people were so threatened um if one person left the studio and went to the other studio because there was a lot of insecurity and we took that out of our system we said it's okay you should be here only if you're happy if you're not happy then you have the complete right to move outside and do whatever you like. And so those kind of a conversations kind of built something very very beautiful um in India I would say. There's also though <laughs> a benefit of being halfway around the clock as well for fast turnaround projects. Right? So it wasn't that you guys worked by yourselves, but you were intertwined with fast moving projects that were based in the United States. Right. It was literally I think we were the first studio in the entire world that did what we did that it was not an outsourcing model it was the same studio 
we were one studio. We were just like in two different places and then we became three and then we became four. We became five eventually. So from India, we went to Malaysia. We started another studio in Malaysia, another studio in Taiwan. But we tried and maintained that same thread. Like it was like a pearl necklace, but all the pearls were strung to that that invisible string. Um, so we basically worked as one studio and it was beautiful. Like the supervisors that were there in LA, how much they invested their time and energy and trust in the artists in India and the same way, vice versa, that the artists in India, Malaysia and Taiwan invested their time and energy in partnering. And it was a true partnership in so many beautiful ways. So how did you transition from that experience to uh, your next adventure was Oriental Dreamworks. I mean, so how did that close and how did the next open and how did that change for you? Um, I think the I'd spent about 13 some years in at Rhythm and Hughes um, and it was time for the next big step to happen. Um, and so when DreamWorks had reached out many times to come and join them and to lead their studio in Bangalore. Um, I was always like, no, I, I'm doing what I'm doing here. I don't think I should dilute my energy and jump places. I was very adamant about moving. But then they finally offered a, a position that I absolutely loved, which was to come and be a part of the leadership team in the visual development and storytelling. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what drives me, that motivates me. And they were very amazing. They were like, come come to Glendale, come work out of here, go to Shanghai, work with the OW team, uh, Oriental DreamWorks team, and then keep coming back to the DreamWorks office in, in LA. So I was hired to be in LA, and then eventually they said, go to um, Shanghai and help champion the Chinese talent there. And that was such a brilliant experience that I had because I'd already traveled like to Malaysia and worked there for about five or six years. I'd been in Taiwan for about three to four years, but China was a completely different, uh, you know, it was completely different because culturally they're so, I would say they're so proud of what they do. And I never felt that with other countries uh, as much as I felt that with China. And it was a very, um, and the language was also another very big thing because they were very shy and they wouldn't speak in English. We always had a translator. So that was a challenge, but it was also amazing that they stuck to their roots, you know, like they really felt like they could communicate and they could get others to listen to what they had to communicate at their terms. And I was like, there was such a big learning experience to say, you respect who you are culturally. You know, you don't have to change. You just be who you are. And I, I love that. I love that about a lot of the things that I learned from, from there. The one thing I do have to say is having worked with over... 2,000 odd people in the visual effects, you know, some of the top people in the visual effects and animation industry in the world and traveled all these places, I believe that talent is universal. You know, um, 
It just takes a little bit of love. It just takes a little bit of trust and the magic happens. Um, and that is the learning that I have taken. And I continue to take every time I speak to someone because I see the potential. I see, I see the potential and, and, and I'm amazed like, oh my God, like how did this happen in five weeks? How did this happen in such a short time? So I'm, I'm always thrilled. So this was a step into Vani as storyteller and story curator. How did that then work its way into now Vani as independent voice, studio, creator? <laughs> How did that journey continue? Um, my time at DreamWorks was amazing because I was so close to storyboard artists. And every day I was writing. Every day I was in this creative space and, and it couldn't, it wouldn't stop. You know, we were constantly generating ideas to pitch, to present, to listen. Um, and my role as the person that was in charge of all these departments, I just couldn't stop thinking and writing. And my father had passed away. And I remember I was sharing my dad's experience with somebody and at DreamWorks and they said, oh my God, you got to tell that story. That's the story I want to see on screen. And I was like, you're joking, right? And they're like, no. And, and these were very senior people at DreamWorks. And they're like, unless you don't write it, unless you don't put it out there, how is anything going to happen? And that was the, the I, I think like somewhere that, that spark kind of took space. Um, I just don't know when it happened, but I knew I had to do something. You know, I knew I had to tell stories that were, that had that, that original voice. Um, and I didn't know how to do it on my own two feet. I have always worked for very big studios, you know, Academy Award winning studios. But to say, I'm going to try this, uh, and so Dancing Atoms happened. So what was the first part of that journey? What was your first creative steps? <laughs> I think the biggest risk that I took uh, was that I started writing for animation and I realized that it was impossible to make something in animation on your own because it requires a lot of people. It requires a huge amount of talent and, and, and to create anything of, of decent quality back then. And so I put that aside for a while and I said, okay, what else can I do on my two feet? And I've always been a travel photographer. I've trekked the Himalayas and I've always taken my camera with me. So I said, you know, what can I do with my camera? What can I do with the bare minimum? Um, I did save up some money and one of the options was go to film school and, and do film school and start from there. Or the other idea was, would you spend $200,000 going to film school or would you just, you know, pick up your camera and go do whatever you want to do and learn that way. So I said, okay, I'm going to teach myself filmmaking. I'm going to teach myself um, to be everything that I've always wanted to be, you know, to direct to be a cameraman, to edit, to do everything, right? And so I literally pick, picked up my Nikon D, D80, 
or D90, whatever that was back then. And talked to a bunch of my friends and they were like, what are you planning on doing? I'm like, oh, I want to go do this film. They're like, oh, great. Just get a bunch of good lenses. And then I, you know, um, went and picked up a few great lenses and started filming um, up in the mountains. And I did my first documentary um, and just it was it was unscripted. I just went and filmed whatever I felt like um, that spiritually called me, I would say. And so I started gathering all the material and, and did my first uh, feature documentary. So you have, from that start, moved through a fair number of spaces and creative ventures. What have been the most pivotal turns and what has blossomed the most of the, of the seeds you've planted on this so far? <laughs> if you talk to any filmmaker who's independent, they'll tell you the journey is really long. Um, what, I have, what I have done on my way as an independent filmmaker is, I think I've given myself the permission to play. Uh, more than anything else, uh, because it's a process, you know, it's not like you're going to get it right the first time. You keep playing with it, you keep experimenting, you fail, and then you cry a little bit and you wake up again, you get at it. And that's basically been the most amazing part of my journey. Um, and then finding the few key people that trust me on my way, uh, again, because Anything that you do in life, I think, you're kind of relating to the other. And that's a very important fact that I use in my life is who are the people that you can support on their journey and who are the people that can support you on your journey, including the people that are the naysayers, because the naysayers are equally important um, because they kind of are like the boosters that are pushing you faster to get there because they're saying, no, you, you don't deserve this or no, you can do this. You can be very negative about them and say, oh, those guys, you know, like, mm, you know, and you can get angry and, and upset, but, but they're also equally important, you know, like there's a certain kind of a resistance that forms in pushing you like, there's, there's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you need that booster. Like, think of it like a rocket, right? To launch that rocket out into the space, you need that pressure that kind of pushes you up. And I feel both the good and the bad are absolutely required to be on that journey. That's something that in the programs we do definitely shows that we call it the bounce effect. That you know, mm. otherwise you would probably not change and improve. You just skim through the wall and instead you bounce off the wall and you build either a different sense of direction with more speed or you have to learn how to push through the wall. And either one right. makes you a better creative than if you just cruise through. Um, it, it, but a lot of the time to reframe it, which you reframe lovely, <laughs> like that, right? Which it's not the curse you for standing in my way but you've derived energy from that interaction or that situation, which is great. I mean, it wasn't like I 
believed in that in the beginning, but like as I kept seeing the pattern of my own mind, I was like, hmm, why am I getting so unhappy about this? You know? Um, and I remember meeting a wonderful, wonderful lady in, in, I forget her name, but she was at an art show and she said, you should put up your art here. And I was like, no, I, I don't think people like my art. And, and then she was like, well, there'll be 19 people that will not like your art, but there might be one person out of those 20 that like your art. And that's the chance you have to take. And so I was very scared. I was very vulnerable. I was very intimidated by naysayers. Um, but I think having that one tiny conversation with a complete stranger in Culver City absolutely changed the way that I looked at naysayers anymore because I, I now count the number of people that are saying no to me because I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to get that one person to say yes to me. And and I think that's that's the beauty, you know. You you just you just walk your path and and just have fun, and it'll happen. So, in your more recent adventures, that you have stepped into unreal and epic and programs to help boost other storytellers, can you talk about this journey into the virtual spaces and how mm. that's let you be then? A bigger solo creator? So I would say that since 2003, maybe almost 20 some years, I've been doing a lot of pro bono um, nonprofit stuff in the visual effects and animation community um, through CIFA India, through Women in Animation, um, SIGGRAPH Asia. Um, you know, FMX, uh, which is in Stuttgart, um, you know, Sony Talent League. There's just a lot of amazing things that people are doing to build communities, to bring people together, to share and network and, and to create. Um, so in that process, I've learned from a very, very young age that you alone cannot be the one person. The more you share, the more you give, the bigger you become, you know, the bigger everybody becomes. Um, and that's something that I've been very, very thankful for people to reach out to me and say, can you do this? Can you build this? You know, so it was ju not just building Rhythm and Hughes, but it was also building all these little things around Rhythm and Hughes creating opportunities for myself and, and people around me. So I realized that while I was struggling being in Los Angeles, pitching my animated feature films, my preschool shows, it just I just realized it just takes a lot of time for people to trust you, whether you can deliver these projects, whether you are the right person, you know, you're a debut and director, will you deliver this project? And they take their time to make those decisions because it's business at the end of the day. You know, as much as it is passion, it's art, it's technology, it's also entertainment and entertainment is about business. Um, so while I was doing all of that, the conversations kind of started to say, why aren't there more women speaking up? 
you know, in Southeast Asia. Um, why are they not visible? Because I know 30, 40, 50 of them. Um, and so that kind of questioning with the right people, I would say, kind of led me to coining this program with Epic Games uh, called the Women Creators Program. Um, I had gone through the Epic Games Fellowship uh, thanks to a wonderful fr- uh, you know, friend that I met 18 years ago. She was like, hey, you know, I want you to join this Epic Games Fellowship. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm not the right person again. I'm not a visual effects artist. You should find somebody to do this program. And she was like, no, 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 you have to do it. You're a, you're a director, you're a filmmaker. We absolutely want you to take this program. And so after a lot of insistence, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do this. And it was, a, it was a game changer to use real-time technology to visualize an idea in five weeks. Uh, absolutely changed my mind you know it was like what like what did I do you know of course we I put in about 14 to 16 hours during the five-week program to deliver but it was doable you know it was the unattainable was attainable like you needed a huge set of uh, you needed a big studio even to do the basic pre-visualization. You need so many artists to get there. But with the real-time game technology, it was like, oh my God, like this is this is so cool. This is so amazing. And so that experience after completing my music video that I directed uh, using uh, the Epic Games uh, real-time engine, I started writing the Women Creators program and, and really asked for that to become possible and it took about I would say it took about 10 months for that program to get greenlit you know and then we did that and it was it was a game changer because I could see that happen to the other other creators that we had handpicked that were all women and we were like they were loving it. They were, you know, they went through the same journey that I went through, which was doubt and imposter syndrome and not sure if they can deliver, not not sure if they can do it. But with the right amount of nurturing and mentoring, they all created brilliant projects. So what are you most excited about right now? Um... I'm most excited about two of my projects that just got selected. Uh, One project has been picked up by a Canadian studio, uh, which is a preschool show. I'm just hoping it finds home. Um, You know, it's legacy. It's something that my father and mother had written many, many, many years ago, almost 30 some years ago. Uh, And for me to see that happen, because I've rewritten it, uh, with a new set of eyes and ears uh, for younger audiences all around the world. Um, it's about family. It's about dance. It's about bringing everybody together. So I'm really excited about that show um, with my new Canadian partners. And and then there's another feature film, which is animated, uh, which got selected into the co-production market in India, which is a big deal. 
Um, it's about friendship. Um, I just can't reveal a lot of the details about what the project is about, but I'm super, super excited that I'm looking for partners on that. Um, so, yeah. And I have a short film, uh, which is an animated short film, uh, which has also gotten a lot of interest in Los Angeles. Um, I've got a couple of really amazing, talented people that have come on board that have been part of the Academy Awards, uh, who've won the Academy Awards and stuff. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to partner with them and push that short film forward as well. Some more directing. More directing. <laughs> Fabulous stuff. So we right. could talk probably on any of these projects for an hour or more. Um, you've got such a rich experience base, but we're near the end of our episode. Thank what have you. we not talked about that you would love to make sure we talk about before we wrap up? Um, I think look to your right, look to your left. You know, look all around and trust people around you. Um, you know, give people opportunities. Um, because whatever my journey is, is going to be my journey. But along with me are many others are also on their journey. So I would always say, like, build, you know, build that tribe, build that community, because it means a lot. You know, when you have to do big projects, you really need that team. You really need those inspiring, talented people. Um, I do. Um, so I always, I always feel like just create more opportunities for, for different people all around the world. So who would you like to reach out to you and how would you like them to reach out? You went with a magic wand. Who would you like to reach out to right now? <laughs> I think people can go to my website, which is www.dancingatoms.com. Um, they could also drop me an email. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can connect with me on LinkedIn um, and say, hey, I heard this and this is what I'd like to do or, you know, whatever that they want to say and reach out. But I'm basically really looking at producers to come on board to, to get my projects to the next level. Absolutely. We'll put all your contact information in the show notes. And um, thank we'll you. Try to keep your adventures updated there as well because you've got so much going on. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Gigi. Thank you so much for, for you know, making this happen. I, it means a lot to me. It does. Thank you. <laughs> for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists. 
and, and find out where else you can find and combine with creative innovators in 2024. <music> 